Welcome everybody. My name is Michael Suarez and I'm the Executive Director of Rare Book School at the University of Virginia. We're delighted to have you with us this evening for this, the second of our summer lecture series. Uh, as you will know, we've gone fully online presenting educational content of various kinds. Uh, and I would encourage all of you to avail yourself of RBS online throughout the whole summer. But without further ado, let's introduce our speaker for this evening. Whitney Trittine is a rising star, an assistant professor in the English department at Penn. She received her PhD from Duke University in 2015 and has an MS in comparative media studies awarded in 2009 from MIT. Before that, she was graduated summa cum laude in English and philosophy from Hood College in Frederick, Maryland. Among her many awards and distinctions are an NEH Mellon Digital Publication Fellowship, the Dennis M. Turk Award for Innovation in Teaching, and the Fredson Bowers Memorial Prize from the Society for Textual Scholarship. Her co-edited collection, Digital Sound Studies, a Provocation, was published by Duke University Press in 2018. And her forthcoming book, Cut, Copy, Paste, is being staged on the Manifold Scholarship Platform through University of Minnesota Press. She has published on textile metaphors in the poetry of Isabella Whitney, print-on-demand publishing and Milton's Areopagitica and Digital Humanities. She is also the co-editor and co-designer of Thresholds, an occasional digital zine for creative and critical interventions. We are delighted to have Whitney with us. Her lecture this evening is entitled, A Hornbook for Digital Book History. Whitney. Great, thank you, Michael. Thank you so much. Um, let me go ahead and share my screen and get us rolling. Um, thank you so much to Rare Book School for inviting me and especially to all the staff uh, Robin and Laura and Laura, who have been so communicative and helpful. And the world is vibrating with change right now on multiple different like levels right now. Um, and it's really nice to touch base with one's communities during moments like this. And I definitely consider RBS to be one of my communities. Um, but more than just touching base, it fills me hope with hope to think about and advocate for the ways that we might together might make this community better, um, stronger and more inclusive. Bibliography has to a large extent been the domain of white men and to a large extent it still is. So let's all commit to working on that together. And with a, in a very small homage to that commitment in a talk that's about digital book history, my non-digital examples today are all pulling from the collections of Lisa Unger Baskin, who I think might be on this call. 
Um, hi, Lisa, if you are. Uh, many of us in and around RBS know and love Lisa. And in fact, I first met her when I was a grad student taking a class at RBS. Um, she was just encrusted with cameos and I had a lot of hair and we met in the hallway. Um, and since then, she's been very generous with dinners and conversation and even opened her private collections to me for research. And um, as many of you know, she's amassed an immense archive of women's work, much of it now at Duke University. And since it's women, and in particular, Black women who are leading today's movements for change, and doing so by using new digital technologies in really innovative ways, I thought it would be fitting in some very small way to think about how women have always used technologies in their work to advocate and argue and rouse the rabble, even when that work has been invisible to the field and to histories of collecting and librarianship and archiving. And in fact, what's continued to draw me to digital book history is a desire to seek out and appreciate those creative endeavors that otherwise escape our purview. That is the women who cut and paste and assemble objects, for instance, um, which is what I cover in my first book. So that brings me to the beginning of my talk um, on digital book history here. And any talk that claims to be a horn book for digital book history immediately invites a question, and it's a question that might already be on your mind. And that is, what do you mean by digital book history? Or more precisely, what is digital modifying here? And I think that there's two ways of thinking about this. So on the one hand, you might be expecting a talk about the history of the digital book. Digital being the modifier, digital book being the modifier of history in some way. And, and that kind of talk might excavate objects like this fabulous prototype of an e-reader designed by Italian architects Franco Crognolo and Isabella Rigamonti in 1992. Um, and to give a touchstone here, that was just six years before uh, the first e-reader was commercially released in 1998. Um, using floppy disks for memory, it was called the Incipits after the word that often begins a medieval manuscript, a precursor to the title page. And it was designed to imitate how one might hold a scroll. Or you might expect me to be going even deeper back to the pre-digital ebook, like this mechanical encyclopedia patented by Spanish educator Angela Ruiz Robles in 1949. While it isn't digital per se, it employs many of the same concepts that would come to define the digital interface, like being able to interact with and manipulate content. Drums housed within the machine were loaded with miniaturized materials that could be enlarged and illuminated with a light and scrolled, and there was a button where you could move materials around. Now, both of these projects never went past the prototype phase. Um, and of course, the history of the digital book would also have to confront the fact that, as Matthew Kirschenbaum has emphasized in his body of work, books today are fundamentally bundles of media files based on the same representational strategies as other media files, like the photographs that are in your phone. And this is true even for books that ultimately end in print. So telling the history of the book as a file, there's another example of the mechanical encyclopedia, um, another prototype. And here is the book as a file. Understanding the book as a file would involve coming to grips with a wider range of material forms than many of us are currently equipped to understand. So we'd have to learn how to crack open an EPUB the way Alan Gailey has done. We'd have to study software and think about the interchange between print and digital as Elika Ortega does in her work. And we'd have to learn how to track supply chains and understand the algorithms that manage them, much as sociologists do. So while the methods of close reading, close looking, and material texts examination might seem fundamentally the same in digital book history of this sort, they'd be dire directed towards very different kinds of materials and someone would have to update Gaskell. But there's a second way of thinking about digital in that phrase 
uh, digital book history, and that's to imagine it as modifying book history as a field. So then it would mean something more like book history done using digital tools and methods. And here we might turn to some of the projects and practices of digital humanities and electronic editing, which have such a long and rich history. And I'm thinking, for instance, most recently of digital Cavendish and particularly Liza Blake's work, um, which she's been very carefully tracking binding stamps on every copy to understand Cavendish's publishing process, making big spreadsheets like this. And by the way, as a side note, I'm trying to be very citational in this talk because I recognize there's people coming from all different angles um, here. And I really just want to think about us as sharing some resources together rather than, you know, me putting forward something um, that only I am saying. I'm really drawing on a whole network of scholars working in these areas. Um, we might also be thinking about uh, VizCall, this amazing tool designed by Dot Porter to visualize the collation of a book, um, or bigger intellectual and database-oriented projects like the Black Bibliography Project, or tools for exploring books as data like the Early Print Project. If history of the digital book draws us to new kinds of artifacts like softwares and servers, book history done digitally pushes that kind of detailed work back, back out into the world to build connective tissue across scattered connection, collections. So we have these two varieties of digital book history then. I'm not gonna move forward yet. Um, and I should note that slapping the adjective digital onto fields names is creating this kind of bifurcation across several fields right now. Um, and I wanted to mention in particular uh, digital humanities, which has had this productive tension for a couple decades now really, um, between those who use humanistic methods of analysis to do humanities digitally and those who study digital media. And I think Alex Galloway um, articulated this really well in a LA Review of Books um, interview in 2016, which I just wanna quote here. He says that there's a two cultures problem in digital humanities. Quote, there's one approach which investigates the nature of letters and numbers. And there's another approach which focuses on the letters and numbers for other ends. He goes so far as to argue that, quote, there is a fundamental difference in method and really maybe even in culture or epistemological framing between these two kinds of DH, since one is critically analyzing the very technologies that the other is using in ostensibly uncritical ways. So we might think about this in terms of one person is studying the ideology of Google Maps while another person is using Google Maps to track all of the places named in a novel. So can we reconcile these two cultures? Um, I think we can, both in digital humanities and in digital book history, and I think actually it's entirely beholden on us to um, do more of that kind of work. Um, and towards that end, towards that end, I have a, a digital problem happening right now, which is that my iPad just decided to reopen the file, text those files. Um, okay, I think it's really productive for us to be thinking of ways that present history of the digital book might illuminate deeper histories of the material texts and the tools that we use to study them. So this makes more sense if we think of concrete examples that, that go across this divide. So for example, studying the history of microfilm, as in recent work by my colleague Zach Lesser, but also scholars like Hannah Albert Abrams, has helped reveal how databases, catalogs, and infrastructures that we accept as digital, like early English books online, are actually rooted in these deeper analog structures of analog technologies. And in fact, how those analog technologies have in turn uh, spurred on the development of digital libraries. So this is all to say that we wouldn't have the internet archive as it exists today without pre-digital, in some sense, thinkers like Paul Otlet, 
um, digital-ish on the cusp of thinkers like Henrietta Avram or Fremont Ryder, who saw in microfilm all the potential that has been realized in digital collections, and even some that hasn't been realized yet. So while it's true that this little adjective digital has cleaved the field in some way, it's beholden on us to build bridges across these rifts in the same way that we can't understand how manuscripts circulated in early modern England without understanding the print cultures of early modern England and vice versa. We can't today understand digital books without a robust understanding of earlier networks of print. And to my mind, our best way of doing that comes from using the digital tools at our disposal in order to see the big picture of the past. Um, okay, and my iPad messed me up a little bit here, so I see that my, my slides have already gone ahead and you, you've already gotten what I wanted to talk about today, which is to offer up a bridge. And the bridge specifically that I want to talk about is a form of vocabulary that I've been thinking through that stitches together bibliography and media studies, one that helps us understand books as media, drawing on both fields, but with an eye really to um, pre-digital forms as much as on digital forms. So in other words, if Gaskell needs to be updated, um, how might we do so using terms that encompass both print and digital and that don't uh, kind of keep reifying these artificial divides? And those terms are the ones on the screen, substrate, platform, interface, and format. Um, and I'm gonna go through each of them with some examples of why I think these terms are useful for the rest of the talk. The hope and aim here is not to get at finally what a book is fundamentally and ideally, but instead to provide a shared groundwork for studying books in the past and present, books as both gatherings of paper and gathered networks of media files, books as containers for content and as forms of interest in themselves. And as we think through together how this vocabulary might reorient us in relation to both the digital book and its pre-digital history, I'm going to gesture br briefly to objects from Lisa's collection, emerging projects, and methods that help us think about the value in that shift. And I've asked the RBS staff to keep the chat box open and would encourage folks to share links or projects that come up for you as I talk, because I'm just going to be able to gesture towards some things. I don't have time to go into much depth. Hence the title, A Hornbook for Digital Book History. I'd like to think about this as a collectively designed primer to relearning how to talk about and work with books in the digital age. Okay, so we're going to begin with substrate. A really fun little Latinate word. So substrate entered the English language in roughly the 18th century, just as the new scientists wielding microscopes were discovering wondrous worlds just beneath the parent reality. Colorful layers of sediment stacked below the landscape or the manifold surfaces upon which a seed might take root. Meaning both a foundation and an underlying layer, a substrate serves as a material bedrock. It's the primary stuff from which other things spring. In Western philosophy, this word taps more deeply into the concept of substances, a term of art with a really long, complex history, and which I won't get into here. But for Aristotle, at least in one still influential strand of his thought, a substance is not simply the smallest constituent units of matter. What we understand today is just an arrangement of chemical elements, but it's matter at the point where it meets function. So in other words, the substance of something like this paper is not its pure atomic properties expressed in a chemical formula, but it is its existence as recycled acid-free rag stock paper capable of holding ink without fading. So if we think about that Aristotelian definition a little bit, and then also think about the 18th century roots of this Latinate word, and also think about our modern use of the word substrate, I'm, I'm interested in thinking about how we might redefine it more capaciously 
as the layers of non-symbolic acemic matter, meaning matter without any meaningful content, content full of meaning, that enable it to store, record, and play back cultural memories. The most basic bedrock unit of materiality needed to describe and understand a device's operation. Now, this word has been bandied about in digital materialism, digital humanities a lot, often without definition. Um, although it's, that's, I kind of like that. I'm not criticizing that. I like how productive this word is. I'm just trying to think about it in a little, a little bit more concrete terms. Um, it comes up in Matt, Matt Kirschenbaum's work on forensic materiality. Um, it also comes up in media studies in terms of elemental analysis. And I realize not all of us here are interested in these fields, but I just mentioned them um, by way of citation. Uh, Nicole Starosielski has done a lot of work on this. She defines elemental analysis as um, the forms of technological criticism that take seriously material and conditioning substrates. And that might mean everything from the kind of FMF imaging of a hard disk drive that Matt has done in his work to undersea internet cables to piles of e-waste, for instance. But substrate is certainly not a term specific to digital media. The origins of handmade paper in flaxseed and cloth underwear, the wood used to make book boards, the animals that provide parchment for medieval manuscripts, all of these are taken up in book history as subjects of serious study. As book historians have drilled down from the layout of the page or its typography to the deeper networks of matter that undergird text technologies. Especially interesting is how the formal qualities of certain materials have constrained or enabled various genres, habits, or modes of writing. For instance, Peter Staley, Brass, Tim Barrett, and Heather Wolf have shown that sizing paper with gelatin during the hand press period greatly affected its absorbency, with heavily sized papers becoming almost erasable. As a result, readers may actually have been ordering books that they wish to be annotated to be sized before binding so that they could more easily write in the margins. So in other words, what we're seeing here is the properties of the substrate are influencing the cultures of writing during the period. And that's where the utility of this word comes into play, right? It's nice to have a term for this kind of work. So take, for instance, this notebook owned circa 1640 by Gertrude Weston and maintained as a memo book throughout the 17th century by the Halsey family, recording family events like births and deaths and marriages. Um, this is in uh, Lisa's collection that's at Duke University Library now. And on the front and back, we see here embroidered an allegory of day and night. Both are depicted as seated women holding flowers or a seated woman holding flowers. And she has a dog. There's a silver clasp on the notebook that you can just barely see in the photographs. And that has a G and a W engraved on it, as I recall from my notes. Um, and that's for the book's owner, Gertrude Weston. And inside is a mixture of regular and erasable paper which you can see here. Now these notebooks, these notebooks that might have erasable paper in them um, are pretty rare today in archives, but they were not necessarily so in the period. As Don Skemmer and Ted Stanley have shown, looking at a Netherlandish erasable notebook that's now at Princeton, this is, I don't have a picture of this book, unfortunately, but um, it's a fascinating book and it was held in, a, in Spanish colonial Guatemala City. Um, and they, were, they, they might've actually been, these erasable notebooks produced in batches um, and because of their erasable properties, they could remain in use for up, up to a century. Especially interesting about uh, the report that they've done is that um, on this, this book at Princeton is that they've used scientific analysis of its chemical composition to show that the manuscript was coated with layers of Baltic amber varnish, as well as gesso. 
And just think about the global networks of supply chains that we, we could be writing if we understood this stuff more deeply, right? This is what interests me, um, which would allow, so because it had this Baltic amber kind of gloss along with the gesso, the inscription, you could use a metal stylus or a pen to inscribe on this erasable notebook. Now, their article contributes to a broader move to understand the material properties of early substrates using bioarchaeology. These include pretty well-known projects to track, for instance, the DNA in medieval manuscripts. Um, Matthew Collins and his team at University of Copenhagen are working on this. Um, and if others know of other projects, I'm happy for you to share links in the chat. Um, such projects are followed really closely by conservators, of course, who understand the science of substrates much better than the average book historian. Um, and there have been a few symposia kind of bringing together people interested in this, but digital tools make possible the testing and tracking of substrates en masse, allowing us to understand them not just as material texts, but as material technologies with technical properties. Such an understanding would put book historical research more in touch with digital bibliography and contribute to a shared history, a shared science of substrates. We might start to think about how the climates that sustain the Palmyra palm used uh, were used to make that were used to uh, make palm leaf manuscripts in South Asia in the sixth century, for instance, alongside the traces of copper that are printed onto fiberglass using, in fact, photolithographic techniques. So circuit boards, um, digital circuit boards are printed using photolithography, a centuries old, um, over a century old technology, right? Um, so we would think about these components together, kind of shared science, a shared history of substrates. It would also help us understand this erasable notebook, not just for its content, which I admit I have little historical interest in other than the fact that it was owned by this woman, Gertrude Weston, but as a technology of inscription and memory, customized with embroidery by a young girl. So the next term is platform. If the Latin root of substrate refers to layers of matter stacked beneath a surface, Platform is in its French origins the surface itself, the flat shape upon which objects are arranged. Literally, it is any lifted level area, like the open terrace at the top of a building, the walkway beside a train, a stage, or plateau. Figuratively, this raised structure becomes a metonym for what it supports. So a platform of a church is a set of principles that that church promises to uphold, of a political party. It's the positions that are advocated by those who are standing on top of the platform, standing on top of the stage. Unlike substrate, the idea of a platform doesn't point down to a thing's roots or origins, but it looks outward towards a speculative future. In other words, platform tends to indicate not the world that one has built, but it's a model, it's a pattern, it's a design for a world that's desired, an arrangement of objects or artifacts that's desired. In the 1980s, the semantic web proved fertile ground for an emerging concept in computer science, the machine or operating system on which applications are run, specifically one that can be programmed. The explosion of digital technologies has since expanded and diluted this definition. So social media platforms are simultaneously a stage for promoting yourself, a set of libertarian principles, and an actual computer program that runs applications. As with substrate, the word platform has become a term of, of art and digital materialism and media studies, especially through the subfield of platform studies. This was um, instantiated largely by Nick Monfort and Ian Bogost, or um, these are the field's progenitors, which, uh, and they define a platform as the abstraction level beneath the code, which we might think of a little bit more um, in layman's terms as computing systems and computing architecture. 
platforms from this perspective are always digital and they are in their, their series of the same name. And even more narrowly, the word tends to mostly refer in their series to game consoles like the PlayStation. And that's, that's all of great utility. And I make great use of, of books in platform studies. But given the history of the word and given the plurality of its uses across different media technologies, there's no reason we must think of platforms as only being digital. And of course, we sometimes see book historians using this word, which is one of the reasons I'm interested in clarifying it a little bit. Returning back to basics, we might revise and historically broaden this definition to assert that a platform is both the material and conceptual wireframe that mediates between an arrangement of physical substrates, the hardware, so think about the stuff of the book, and this system's interface with its users, the content that's being purveyed, the software. So if a substrate is matter defined according to and at the level of function, then platforms are the stru structures, both literal and figurative, the structures that hold these substrates together into working form. So we could see a codex as a platform in that it's in its abstracted wireframe, instantiated physically through an arrangement of, in the case of an early printed book, rag made paper, thread, boards, leather, leather that kind of material. Um, a platform studies of the book might look to objects like Gertrude Weston's erasable notebook, uh, but it would also help illuminate other genres that book history has struggled with. Um, and here I wanna bring up <coughs> the autograph album and friendship album of the 18th and 19th centuries. And there's a lot of bleed through in terms of like 18th century autograph albums leading to different forms uh, across the continent um, in the UK and then coming over to America. I'm just gonna, because of time, and this isn't about friendship albums and autograph albums, I'm gonna cut through the, the genre questions right here and just um, focus on a few examples from Lisa's collection uh, that I think are really interesting. There has been some work in this genre and they are fairly well known. Of course, these are um, albums that were shared amongst friends and you would, you would write in them, inscriptions. I'll show some examples here in a, section, uh, in a second. Um, but because of the bibliographical methods in which we're trained, a lot of the research that I've seen has focused on really exemplary case studies, right? Those that are shared within famous communities. And I think we still struggle to think about how to write about very mundane everyday 19th century American albums, for instance, um, outside of thinking about them as a genre, thinking about them instead as a technology. And here I wanna give a shout out to Deirdre Lynch's work on blank books, which is forthcoming, um, which is really amazing and does think about these albums as media. Um, so here on the screen, you're seeing a few examples of just such albums. These are copies of the floral album used by communities, largely of women um, to record watercolors, poetry, autographs, they were containers for storing hair from loved ones. They were coloring books. They were aspirational artifacts that remain to this day uh, largely blank, some of them. So if we push past the desire to understand them in terms of their content and instead see these as technological platforms, that is, as this kind of material and conceptual wireframe, we can start to track the emergence of them as media technologies that enable and constrain certain ways of writing, creating, and being in relation to others. Um, so here again, digital methods and tools might help with this work. Um, I'm thinking in particular of social network analysis, which tracks the relations between people and other objects. Really interesting work has been done in book history um, with social network analysis. John Ladd has been using networks of paratext to track literary form. Ruth and Sebastian Onhert have been tracing networks of early modern letters, again, Sharing links in the chat is welcome. But I want to emphasize here that network analysis also offers a really unique opportunity for book history in particular to understand how platforms take shape 
excuse me, take shape historically, by which I mean how the form of the codex married with certain kinds of substrates comes to sustain these different networks of relation. Um, I have been thinking about this in my own work, um, which is very different from friendship albums, but related to this idea of networks of relation uh, on Humphrey Mosley. Mosley is a well-known 17th century English publisher. Um, he was long, long has been thought to be responsible for, for promoting certain kinds of publishing practices that literally changed the face of printed books. Um, he used uh, strategically engraved authors' portraits, dedications, and letters to the reader. And this project began when I was wondering, how might we read each of his books as itself a network plugged into this larger publishing infrastructure? And so I spent a summer work, working with an undergraduate student um, at my university, Zoe Brachia, and together we tracked the labor um, of every person that was involved in each book in Mosley's um, entire output, about 320, 330 so books, as I recall. This included the engravers who made portraits. This included um, the poets who wrote dedicatory poems and letters, the authors themselves, printers, stationers. It even included a few musicians who composed music that was then included as part of Mosley's books. And we then created this network from this, this, the tracking of all these people's labors within the book. And when visualized as such, this database of relations showed us how Mosley worked often with certain authors which are not in fact like widely read today, like James Howell, to write promotional materials for certain books. And it created these kind of dense areas of internecine self-promotion among the authors. And again, I don't have a lot of time to go into this particular project. I'd be happy to talk about it more on, in the Q&A and how I, what technologies I use. But on the whole, what we see here is the early modern English printed book coming to maturity and standardization as a platform complete with certain regular features, like having a title page that looks a certain way or including an engraved author's portraits for certain genres of books. Now, the questions that emerge from this kind of project are not fundamentally literary questions about genre. They were technological questions about form and sociality. What other bookish platforms, it made me think, might come into view through this kind of network analysis? Okay, moving up from substrate to platform, the next term that I wanna talk about is interface. <clears throat> I had no idea about the history of this word until recently, but it's really fascinating. For the first century of its life, from roughly the mid 19th through the mid 20th century, the word interface was a term of art in the physical sciences, specifically fluid mechanics. It was coined by the engineer James Thompson to refer to the boundary where two different substances might meet and mingle and separate. So like think of oil meeting water and the kind of boundary that's created there. That's, that's a, a fluid interface. By giving a name to this liminal zone, scientists brought it into being as a tangible plane of interaction. It's a space with its own material effects that are worthy of study, right? So it's not just two substances. Suddenly there's like two substances and this third thing to study. Through transference, the scientific term came to mean by the 1960s any point of connection between two systems, like the many actual devices developed to connect machines to each other or to a grid or to humans. These include, of course, today the keyboards, trackpads, cameras, touchscreens, and mouses through which we're giving input to our computers right now, as well as the monitors and speakers that are returning output to us in response right now. Regardless whether the interface is understood as a boundary or a node of interaction, the key idea binding together all these definitions is that it is, as Brandon Hookway has emphasized in his work on the interface, 
not so much a form as a form of relation. And I really like this um, because the idea of the interface has been used in book history to think about the dynamics of the page. I'm thinking in particular of a lot of work that I love, like by Bonnie Mack, Joanna Drucker, and Amaranth Forsuk. But I think digital definitions of the interface as a form of relation help us go a bit deeper into the mechanics of the codex to bring into relief the book's many interfaces, the liminal spaces between its facets. Gutters, folds, and cuts are all nodes of relation between elements in a paper platform. Thinking about them as interfaces, as liminal zones where two faces are meeting, might help illuminate how these uniquely bookish spaces purvey content. And I won't dwell too much on this word, um, but a great example here, again, from Lisa's collection is this fabulous little metamorphosis or transformation print. Um, as Jacqueline Reed Walsh has discussed in her work on these prints more generally, these are interactive. They're kind of like little digital toys that someone would play with. They're didactic and educational. They're meant to teach children. They often reinforce gender binaries, um, especially in the 18th century prints. Um, and, but, but more to the point of what I'm trying to do with this word interface, they're also making use of multiple interfaces. Like if we think about all of these folds, not just through the term interactivity, but through interface as, a, as the, the kind of the technology of the transformation print, um, we might, it might open up new ways of thinking about these things. So what lines can we draw from here forward to Robles' mechanical encyclopedia, for instance, which also involves an interface with certain forms of similar interactivity? Okay, the last term that I wanted to discuss today is also the, more, the most fraught, and that is format. Uh, so format is obviously a word that applies to both digital media and books. There's been a flurry of work on format and digital media recently. There are also objects that fit both categories. Um, in bibliography, it's a, it's a relatively complicated concept. One of the the ones that took me the longest time to grasp in my RS, RBS desk bib course. Um, a lot of people uh, assume it means kind of size and shape, and it's often taken to mean that, but as Thomas Tansel has shown in a really, really detailed and truly fabulous, amazing essay, a, a work of art as an essay, um, he argues that format actually is intended to express something more like the relation between the physical structure of the finished book and the printing shop routines that led to that structure. Um, so in other words, a page printed with four leaves is on a sheet is one that is a, the book is a quarto format, right? So we're thinking about what's happening in the print shop and what's happening in the final platform to continue with that term. But format of course has also become an increasingly useful concept in media studies. In his book on the MP3 as an audio format, Jonathan Stern defines formats as denoting a set of rules according to which a technology can operate. It's a protocol, in other words, which helps different communications technologies communicate with each other. Uh, more recently, Dennis Tennant in his book on digital technolo technology has argued that formats translate between disparate systems of ordering and signification, mediating between data structures. So it's a mediating agent between um, the, the software that needs to load the file and the hard drive that stores the file, for instance, to put it in a little bit simplistic term. So without losing the specificity of what format means for printing of the hand press period, which remains a really important concept in bibliography, I'm interested in adopting some of these digital definitions as a heuristic for understanding different forms of textual production that have otherwise escaped our attention. And I'm being guided here 
um, by uh, a, a bibliographical muse in many things, uh, Meredith McGill, who's been doing this work with respect to ballads and taking up her charge to adopt and adapt digital format theory for material texts, we might start to look with fresh eyes at certain objects, like this fabulous little collage in Lisa's collection. And I just love this thing. I fell absolutely in love with this thing when she showed it to me. Um, so what this is, what you're looking at is a handkerchief. I'll show you the source in a second. A handkerchief that's been cut up and pasted onto a kind of a kind of like brown board, a cardboard. It's not too thick though, um, as well as different little pieces of cloth that have been used to create the flowers. So I'll show you here on the right. You can see the original commemorative uh, handkerchief for the Bunker Hill Monument. It's got a poem. It's got this address. It's got the image on it. She's cut out the the edges and reframed them. She's made flowers from it. Um, she's also somewhat modified the text. Um, the text here says the design of this monument is to commemorate the piety and patriotism of those devoted Americans who trusting in God determined to die free rather than live slaves. Okay, what has she done to that? She's taken it, cut it up, and made it say the design of this monument is to commemorate the piety and patriotism of those devoted Americans who trusting live slaves. Very confusing. A very confusing modification of this handkerchief. Um, so super fascinating. It also has um, some, as I recall, like pressed feathers, and these are little printed, um, little printed kind of flourishes that she's um, added in. I'm getting so excited by it. I'm pointing at my screen like we're in front of the object. Um, okay, so if we think about format as translating between data structures, between disparate systems of orderings and signification, as Tenen puts it. Um, then we're, we not only see how she's repurposing these materials creatively and perhaps a little bit critically, um, but she's also, and, and of course by changing the text, but also we can see how the technologies that she's working with are thoroughly mediating the entire process. This is not just a copy, it's not just a version, it's not a new edition, in fact it stretches our bibliographical terms to understand it. And here, a word like format, especially with the flavor that comes from uh, digital media studies, actually might help us understand this thing. This is a, diff it's a file in a different format. It's been reformatted. Um, I have another example, which I'll close out on before taking questions um, of reformatting, because this is, this is something we could go crazy with. And I realize I'm being a, it's a little bit facile to you know, just adopt these terms, but part of what I'm trying to think through here is what does it offer us to just except it's a little bit facile, and think about the digital when we look at the past. And I think it gives us a new lens for understanding these materials that otherwise you might just throw your hands up at and say, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know who created this. I don't know why she did it, etc." Okay, so the last example I'm going to use, also one of my favorites, um, is, uh, oh, there's a picture of Lisa holding up the um, holding up the thing. And you can actually see that there's some more details to the cutting that I, I, you can't really see in the picture very well. Um, okay, so the last example is from Phoebe Anna Traquar's book, Sonnets from the Portuguese. Um, Traquar, for those who aren't familiar with her, was a multimedia Scottish artist, and she was part of the arts and crafts movement in Britain, working in the visual traditions of William Blake and of the Pre-Raphaelites. And uh, with that tradition, she was rejecting mechanization that came with new technologies like the Jacquard loom. And following traditional handmade methods and craft work, she would design and execute these extraordinary objects like the textiles. You're looking at some of her wall hangings, 
um, covering the progress of the soul on the left. She also painted this um, entire piano. She painted and embellished the inside of a church. She made enameled jewelry. She was a, a, a really multi-talented artist, but she also made books. She was a book designer and she would copy in careful calligraphy uh, different texts and then illuminate them with really vibrant colors, especially books of poems. So she wasn't writing the poetry necessarily, she was mediating it in a book. Um, and then she would bind it in really bespoke, beautiful uh, uh, leather covers. So one example of her work is the one I mentioned, the Sonnets from the Portuguese. And this is a collection of love poems by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. It was originally published in 1850. Between 1892 and 1897, Traquar limbed and illuminated the sonnets on parchment to produce this extraordinary manuscript, which you're seeing here. She then had it bound in London in green calf and was, it was covered in gold tooling. And she presented this book as a gift to her brother as the product of her heart and hands. And that's where most discussions of this project end with this manuscript kind of intentionally medieval in its design and painstakingly executed by hand. But I think by leaving the discussion there, we just leave Traquoir remaining as a kind of anti-mechanistic artist, reviving bespoke pre-Renaissance traditions and kind of the face in the face of and on the cusp of modernity, right? So we see her as anti-technology. But that's not where Traquoir herself left the project. Before she gifted the manuscript to her brother, she had a facsimile made in colotype, a photographic reproduction process for printing page images in black and white. In other words, she had the book not just copied or reproduced, but reformatted. Some of these copies were bound in an embossed pigskin, um, which she made herself, and sold, not as cheap reproductions, but as fine art books. She even had at least one of her colotype copies exhibited at the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. Thus, as strange as it might seem to us now, looking at these somewhat kind of grainy black and white reproductions, these colotype facsimiles were not seen as cheap off prints, but were in fact seen as fairly, fairly accurate marvels that captured something of the qualities of the original. That is if the original manuscript shows through its obsessive medievalism, a concern for the aura of bespoke handicraft, the colotype facsimile did not stand in opposition to this aura, but actually bottled it and sold it to a wider audience. And as absolutely fabulous evidence of this, um, there is in Lisa's collection at Duke, a copy of Trequar's colotype facsimile of Browning's sonnets, which has been hand illuminated by another female artist, Ethel Frances Mundy, who, has, who I've done a little bit of research on. And the extent that I could find out about her is that there, some of her paintings have been sold on eBay in the last 20 years. But so she clearly saw herself as an artist. She was, um, a practicing artist, she bought one of these colotype facsimiles and then illuminated it in the tradition of Traquoir herself. So here we see the copy being reformatted once again, kind of trading back and forth between like facsimile and technological, um, new technology facsimile and handicraft bespoke production. I can think of no better example of the power of both forms, uh, of both forms of digital book history than this book facsimile reproduction that spurred on further creative processes um, for Mundy. Here then are the technological substrates of photomechanical processes and the papers that support them used to reproduce a handcrafted object, which becomes a platform for reformatting and disseminating Traquoir's work, which in turn offers an interface for connection between one artist and another. 
Oh, again, while the terms I've offered here aren't a catch-all, they aren't a panacea at all, I do think that finding productive ways to discuss the digital and the book and their shared histories may help us illuminate new ways of thinking about objects like these, especially those that have fallen between the cracks of traditional bibliography. It gives us a framework for seeing something new in the past and connecting that to our present moment. And it gives us the tools for telling these stories in ways that connect to broader audiences. Thank you so much for listening and I'd be happy to take questions. Thanks so much, Whitney, for that amazing and wonderful talk. Um, we have some questions that are surfacing in our chat. And I'm going to ask the first one. Um, this is a question from Susan Garfinkel. And she has a question about interface. So Susan asks, um, with respect to interface, how would this embodied definition relate to a more semiotic um, idea of the liminal boundary between signifier and signified, text and reader, and so on. And Whitney, you're on mute right now. Sorry. It wouldn't be Zoom if I didn't, you know, if one <laughs> of us didn't forget to unmute ourselves. Um, yeah, fascinating question, uh, Susan, um, which I'm frankly not quite sure how to answer because um, how I've been thinking about these terms is, can we expand our, can we expand our purview on materiality to be wider and more encompassing in ways that don't continue to keep these boundaries um, up between different fields? And part of what spurred this on was um, reading a long, uh, reading the last 25 years of digital formalism and trying to track all the systems that people have come up with for understanding the digital. And, and they are, in some sense, these semiotic systems that attempt to produce a language of the digital, like, you know, um, uh, uh, like keywords of the digital, things like that. It's, it's an attempt to um, actually define, define the elements of the digital and it, in ways that always define it against print. That's the key thing about all digital formalism of the last 25 years that I've noticed. And that got me thinking, well, what actually, what actually does it mean that we're defining it against print. Um, we all say, oh, there's no boundary between print and digital anymore, but, but all the systems we have, all the tools we have in the media studies toolbox are actually continuing that, that division. So I don't really know how to answer the question of like between sign and signifier, um, but I would say that there's semiotics in the background of what I'm, I'm thinking here. And I'd be curious to hear more about the question in the chat because I might not have fully understood it. Great, and I encourage people, please do um, submit some more questions by chat. Um, Whitney, I have a question for you. Um, I really love how you are taking these ideas, substrate, platform, interface, format, and using them to look back. And your, um, your choice here focus, uh, focuses a lot on composition. And it prompted me to think about not only composition, but decomposition. So how would we think about decomposition in these these um, terms that can cross across these different media. Um, I was thinking, for example, of bit rot and then red rot and decay. Um, would you speak a little bit about that? I love that because uh, you're exactly right. I mean, these are things that we're coming to grips with in 
digital studies, digital media studies, media studies. Um, and I know like a lot of Matt's work, who I've, which I've cited here, obviously, um, has argued that that glitches, when we use old file formats, right, we open an old file format, the glitch is where we see the resistance in the materials, which brings out um, something about, about the media itself, brings out something about its materiality, which then can encourage bibliographic methods, right? It's like a, a call to returning to the, like the classic bibliographical methods. So, but that makes me think like, what are the, the glitches of the past? And there's a way that we might connect this with um, a lot of recent work on the temporality of books where people have emphasized that you're never just looking at a book when you're in the rare book room, right? Like you're looking at a, a 17th century book that's been washed in the 19th century, that's been rebound by the library in the early 20th century, right? And that that we can't just like use it to commune with the past, that we have to think about these things. Now, is that glitching in the book? Is it bit rot? I mean, in some ways it's, it's attempting to stave off the rotting of the book, but it is rotting it as like a historical transmission from past to present, right? So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's noise in the signal that we want to recreate in, in connecting with the past. So, so I think your, your question is like, I haven't actually thought about it, but it's really rich in terms of this idea of how we might use stuff that's happening in the digital to understand the past. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we have a slew of more questions to ask. So I'm going to, I'm just going to toss another one out there. Um, so we have a question from Christopher Phillips and he begins as follows. Christopher writes, it seems there are rich possibilities for tying book history more closely with environmental history. Not just histories of stuff, but this larger notion of interface, for instance. Could you say more about how you see your terms offering new pathways between the environment and the book? Yeah, I love that question. Um, this is uh, this talk was one of the hardest talks actually for me ever to write because I really wanted to focus on. I wanted to say something about the terms in part because I'm actually I'm genuinely curious about feedback on them. This is something that I've been working on for a little while now, um, but but. Also, it was frustrating because every everything like connects up to a million other things that are going on right now. And this this idea of um, environmental humanities or just the environment or climate having something to do with the history of the book is one that's underexplored and needs to be more explored. Um, but the area that seems to be doing it the best right now actually are people who study indigeneity in book history um, and indigenous materialisms and indigenous religion and how it understands materiality and then using that sense of materiality to, um, to think differently about book history and its evidentiary status. So, so that's one place that I would look to for thinking about climate and the environment. But, but at the same time, like the, the DNA and medieval manuscripts and tracking DNA and parchment, that's also a climate question, right? Like we could actually be answering histories um, really deep histories of the environment here. And just as another example that has to do with climate, I'm just like throwing things into the air here, but um, something I've been looking at recently is frost fair printing. Frost fairs only happen because of a, a little, it's called a little ice age. It wasn't really a little ice age, but the, the Thames would freeze over in London. Printers would wheel out some printers onto the ice and you could go and get a souvenir printed. And so these ephemeral things exist, although they have not really been written about in book history at all. Um, so, and that's another way that, that printing, uh, the history of printing and the pr history of ephemera was influenced by climate. So thanks for the question. It's really, there's so much research to be done in that area. Well, thank you for your insightful reply to that. Um, we have another question, this one coming from David Brewer. He asks, 
how useful is the concept of book in all of this? And he puts book in quotation marks. I can imagine all these terms working well to think about printed and painted and photographed images. Is there something important about the notion of books that is important to hang on to? Yes, I think that there is. Um, but this is something that I, I do think about a lot and is something that we have to always confront in this work because we use this word um, just so we just throw it out there um, and often mean codex, sometimes mean book content, sometimes just mean novel, right? So, so we do have to think more deeply about this term. The, the best essay that I keep returning to on this is Derrida on the book. And he defines it if you just kind of push through all the <laughs> theoretical, you know, um, kind of spinning and twirling of, of words that he's doing with, with the concept. At, at root, what he says a book is, is the tension between gathering information together when the world is constantly trying to disperse it. And I really, really love that definition because, you know, an, an ebook that is a bundle of files is a gathering in the face of dispersal. A codex book is a gathering in the face of dispersal. Uh, the, the prints and things like that that I've shared, the transformation prints, that's a gathering in the face of dispersal that then enters into the world and can make a difference, can spur on new innovation, different ways of thinking about things, right? So, so I think the book remains useful if we think about it in this much looser way that isn't tied to platform, isn't tied to any specific technology. Instead, think about it as this kind of centripetal force that is, is pushing things together that are also being pulled apart, right? It's something that gathers. And in that ways, we can connect it to the histories of libraries. We could connect it to the histories of collecting. Um, there's a whole lot of work that we can do with what Derrida is doing in, in that essay, I think, and the kind of book work that he's, he's inviting. Great. Wonderful. There's another question. This one uh, from our own uh, Matt Kirschenbaum, who is um, starting off with a comment. Um, he says, hi, Whitney. Thank you. Love the talk. And here comes his question. Thinking about the contrast between Lisa's archive, where you worked in the digital archive, how can we extend your framework to think institution, institutionally and infrastructurally, as well as artifactually? So institutionally, infrastructurally, as well as artifactually. What aren't we already archiving digitally that we should? Oh, yeah, um, that's a great question. Thanks for your question. Um, okay, I took the first half of the question a little bit differently. So I'm gonna start, start with that, um, which is to say that one of the things I wanted to talk about but, but couldn't really get in here is about how these terms, how these histories, um, can help us come with fresh eyes to the facsimiles that we're creating institutionally and the digital libraries that we're creating. Um, me and Zach Lesser for another project were recently looking at um, facsimiles of different books on, for instance, the Folgers website and thinking about um, uh, Miranda and these other cataloging projects that are new. And there's, there's a move towards copy-specific cataloging that's super invigorating, but how that connects to copy specific digitization and how the digital facsimile represented as a book on our screens, which has everything to do with the shape of our screens, the history of microfilm readers, the deep histories of these hardwares and infrastructures, right? Um, we still have books on the screen in Internet Archive and Happy Trust, all these kinds of things, right? And, and we're so, in fact, we almost have like a software lock-in happening right now with how bookish our digital books remain, despite the fact that for 20 years people have saying that they're not. And I think that has to do with a lack of communication between 
um, scholars, between catalogers who are doing the hard work that scholars are not paying attention to. Um, it has to do with metadata standards moving forward in ways that don't account for digital objects as digital objects. So this might bring me to the second part of your question, which is what are the digital things we can be, um, we can be saving? One of the things we absolutely need to do right now is start attaching metadata to digital archival objects that are digitizations of things. So like a digital facsimile, a digital photograph, the things that we're going to find in like Folgers repository, for instance, we need metadata on them as digital objects. And we need to start thinking about that facsimile as a separate collection item. Now, I realize that there might be catalogers or librarians in the, in the audience who are like, ah, we don't have the time to do that. And I completely understand. But um, we're at a breaking point with how we don't, like we just have no information on these things and they're floating around the world now. Um, and and many people are doing research entirely based on the digital artifact now. And, uh, and that seems to me to be a real problem. So I'd like to see more actually kind of crossover between the digital artifacts um, at like the facsimiles and things like that. I know you're probably asking more about like digital things that we should be thinking about collecting, but I don't, I don't know. I might leave that to others to think about our answer because I'm not quite sure how to answer that yet. Thanks Whitney. I think we have time for just one more question. Uh, and we have a question from Marissa Nicosia. She says, thank you for this talk, Whitney. In your discussion of platform, you linked it to genre at one point. I wonder if this is a connection um, that you want to push further the link between platform and narrative or platform and a set of shared cultural norms seems super productive to me. Hi, Marissa. Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, I totally agree. And I'd love to hear more about what you're talking about um, or more specifically what you mean. I know you've done some work on um, Mosley and 17th century books too. Um, and we should chat about that. But but if, if I'm capturing what you're, you're asking and what you're saying, um, seeing the emergence of a platform like the book as it becomes through Mosley's publishing interventions, right? Um, that that is inevitably tied to his, his influence on genre. And I, I would agree with that if that's kind of where you're headed with that question, but just say that we've done so much work on the genre, we haven't really thought about the technological underpinnings um, of how those genres are being created, except in really vague terms like the printed book, the folio, right? So can we drill down and get more specific with, with the book as like this aggregate of different substrates? Because it's a, it's a set, it's a network of different forms actually being brought together, right? It's not a singular thing, the early modern printed book at all. So, um, but I really like your question and, and something to think about more. Well, this has been absolutely uh, fabulous, Whitney, thought-provoking, and there are so many more questions in the chat. I'm sorry that we don't have time to um, discuss more of those questions because this has been illuminating, I think, for all of us. And we will be uh, recording, or rather sharing this recording through YouTube so people can watch it, and I hope the conversation will continue offline. Um, I don't think we can necessarily give a round of applause um, that you can hear, but um, I just want to say on behalf of all of us, this has been a real treat. We're grateful and I hope that we'll all stay in touch. Definitely. And thank you so much. And thank you to everyone who stayed and listened at seven o'clock on a Thursday. And also I have not been able to see the chat. So if anyone ever wants to get in touch with me, I'm available on Twitter or email. I love to talk about these things. So please reach out. And thanks so much to RBS again. This is really fun.
great. Thanks again. Take care, everyone.